I'm Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMEPS podcast, our series of conversations with leading scholars in the field. Uh, with us today is Curtis Ryan. He's a professor of political science at Appalachian State University. Uh, Curtis, welcome to the program. Thanks. It's nice to be back. So, uh, You've been doing research for many years on the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, and they have an election on September 20th. Could you tell us a little bit about what's new about this election and what you think observers should be paying attention to uh, with this vote? Okay, I think I think there are two major things just right off the bat. One, uh, that Jordan has had multiple elections over the years, um, some with some problems, some less so, but every single time with a brand new electoral law. So first off, we have a brand new electoral law to try to figure out. And the other thing that accompanies this and actually makes the election interesting is the return of the entire opposition. There's been so much struggle over elections and election laws um, uh, in Jordan since the late 1980s that the opposition, or at least large chunks of it, very often boycott. This time, no one is boycotting. Every opposition group is participating in the system, and that means uh, Islamist participation, the Muslim Brotherhood in particular. So that's actually one of the most intriguing aspects of the election. Well, let's take those in turn. So tell us about the new election law. What makes it different from the previous ones? Okay, the, they, for many, many years there, the, the, the government had, a, as early as 93, 1993, introduced a system that was based on uh, individual districts, one person, one vote within the districts that tended to be heavily gen- gerrymandered. So the opposition was uh, opposed to this uh, from 1993 onward, and then every successive election, this has turned into a bit of a crisis. Wait, tell, tell us, tell us what was wrong. Tell us what was wrong from their point of view with that election law. Well, their argument was that it was deliberately meant from their perspective to dilute the opposition. That it was it, the election, the, for example, the, the districts. Uh, overrepresented urban areas and underrepresented rural areas, and the net effect was that uh, of that was that Islamist strongholds, mostly in cities, would be underrepresented, and rural, more tribal, more conservative, more allegedly royalist uh, constituencies would be overrepresented, producing these parliaments that the opposition would ridicule as basically being glorified tribal assemblies rather than more pluralist uh, uh, representations of what Jordan is actually about. So they were looking for a better opposition representation and also a system that would help develop political parties over time, which actually is one of the things that government and opposition both talk about, but the the trouble has been actually getting a system that actually, in fact, does build political parties as opposed to diluting them and, and dividing the opposition, which is already you know, usually does a pretty good job of dividing themselves between left and right, secular, religious, and so on. So this is just extra mechanisms that, that uh, divide. Yeah, the opposition, and more often than not, um, they don't participate in the system. They reject it outright, and then they're left out of parliament for the next several years. So what's new about this election law, then? Well, the new one actually, it goes along with one major demand that the opposition has been making from 1993 and really until this year, which is get rid of the one-person, one-vote law, get rid of that, uh, what we in political science uh, would would call the single non-transferable vote um, system, and replace it with uh, a list-oriented system or proportional representation. Well, they actually got that mostly. There is proportional representation. There are going to be lists, but not necessarily party lists. And very importantly, the lists are in districts, not at the national level. And that second part was a bit of a surprise because many people thought they would build on an experiment they did last time, which is to have a few seats in parliament go to national lists and the rest in the old system. 
this time they just changed the entire thing, really. Um, and it's, it is district-based, so we have 23 different districts, uh, which will produce ultimately 130 parliamentarians. Um, and it's one of those systems, though, in terms of the calculation, since uh, voters will be required, so it requires a lot of explanation, that requires, the voters will require to vote uh, in two different ways. One, you pick a list in your district, and then your second set of votes will be you vote for candidates within that list you just picked. So in a way, the lists are competing with each other, which makes sense. The part that's a little more confusing, including to the candidates, and every candidate I talked to, in fact, was a little confused about how this would work at the end of the tallies, this, it, that's, in a way, even on your own list, you're kind of competing against other people in your list because you're almost certainly not all going to get through to the final threshold. So this is a new, and this part is very new and different and untested and a little bit unpredictable in terms of what our outcome will actually be. So it sounds like this was enough to get the opposition back into the game. Yeah, I think it was because, uh, and, and although it was a close, close run thing for, for many of them, there were a lot of uh, debates, the left parties and pan-Arab nationalist parties, which don't have a big share of the vote and have struggles even winning a single seat sometimes. Uh, they had come back in the previous election, so they were kind of gearing up for this, and this met some of their demands. The more intriguing issue, I think, was the Islamist movement, and they had closed-door meetings in their various different versions of the Islamist movement and surprised at least some people by one after another announcing that they were going to participate. Sort of more moderate reformist elements said that they would, which was not a surprise. But when every other version of the movement then said, okay, we're going to give this a go after sitting out the last several elections, that was a bit of a surprise. So now, uh, even though they don't particularly love the system, everyone is is theoretically on board. And now the next thing, of course, to figure out, at least from their perspective, is, well, how do you work the system? How do you kind of game this kind of system and try to work it to your advantage? Because in effect, everybody from the Independent Electoral Commission who's running this show – to the opposition parties, to loyalist parties, everybody's a novice at this system and trying to figure out how this is really going to work. Can we talk a little bit more about the uh, the Islamist movement? I mean, traditionally, what people expect from a Jordanian election is that the Islamic Action Front uh, from the Muslim Brotherhood is the strongest and most important opposition party. But the last couple of years, there's been a fairly sustained assault on the Muslim Brotherhood and this uh, splintering of the movement. And so tell us a little bit about that process and how it is likely to play out in the elections. Yeah, that's, that's a great question because the uh, last time since the split, the last time the split was, was uh, you know, is already the whole Muslim Brotherhood was fairly alienated from the system and is clearly the largest uh, opposition group and def- definitely the best organized opposition group in the kingdom. And they correctly argued that their roots go back as far as the Hashemite monarchy itself. They both, you know, in, at the moment of independence, the monarchy and the Muslim Brotherhood were both there. Um, so they've been... Uh, sparring in a way with each other, sometimes loyal opposition, sometimes more adversarial for, for all of these decades. And the last time around, there was a splinter movement that had developed in the 90s called the Islamic Centrist Party, the Wasat or Wasatiya movement. Uh, they actually did participate in the elections and were one of the few groups to actually figure out how the last system worked and did relatively well. But they were the only Islamist game in town, so they're competing in a way against nobody. This time, um, we have an even more complicated issue because Jordan doesn't have one Muslim Brotherhood. It really has two. Uh, they've been split uh, uh, to some extent from their own internal divisions, to some extent with uh, 
probably with facilitation of the state itself, which really doesn't mind the opposition splitting and is, is probably encouraging it. And so we had this reformist, what's called the Zamzam movement, based on where they came up with their, their uh, program, a more reform-oriented, more Jordan-rooted uh, national uh, Islamist movement that broke from the Muslim Brotherhood in the region, broke specifically with Cairo. Uh, and a lot of this is the fallout, I think, of the Arab Spring and the rise and fall of the Muslim Brothers in Egypt has had profound effects on the Muslim Brotherhood in Jordan, uh, how the state views them, how they view themselves, etc., so we have two movements here. One, this reformist, more Zamzam-oriented movement, which was going to participate from the get-go, um, and now, in some ways, I think has been outflanked by the original larger movement, which you were just referring to, um, the the original larger Muslim Brotherhood movement, which technically is unlicensed now. The government let their license expire and refused to renew it um, to try to curb them, but they still have a legal political party, the Islamic Action Front. So they have reformed themselves as... Uh, at least for the elections, as the National Coalition for Reform, uh, going usually by just one name, Reform Islam. Um, and one of the reasons I think they have a real advantage in this election is they are contesting almost every single district in the entire country, which also surprised a lot of people. They're not just having a list in one or two cities. They're trying to get almost every district. Uh, they have legions of candidates. They have a huge grassroots system of support. And they have what, you know, uh, we talk about in American elections as ground game. And they have people out there. And so in some ways, I think this election should be seen, in addition to all the other things that are going on, there's a sort of internal story of a sort of Islamist referendum of how people feel about the regime's own policies towards the Islamists, but also which Islamist movement is it? You know, which one, will the real one really stand up here in terms of who's got the support? Will it be this reformist Zamzam movement? Will it be the Islamic Action Front in a new guys? Will it be the centrists? Probably not, by the way. Uh, it seems like the IAF, even in the new version, the National Coalition for Reform, has a real edge here and can probably win quite a few seats. It's really hard to figure out how many that would be, uh, but I think they're excited. Uh, they think their prospects are good. Uh, there are many people in the regime and in government who are actually really worried about how, how far in they can actually get. What about the uh, the loyalist candidates and, and tribal candidates who've dominated the last few parliaments? Have they been able to put together any kind of effective uh, campaign? Yeah, and I think they're uh, – but since the, since it's district-based lists, um, it it's looks a little bit different in every single location So uh, because of the local makeup. Uh, so um, tribal – in some cases, lists are in fact entirely tribal candidates from that location, and you can assume unless another list emerged from the exact same tribe, um, then you can expect them to do relatively well. But a lot of the lists have tried to do actually what the Islamists are doing, which is pull in people who are not from their movement. So one of the other smart things that the IAF has done is, is put together lists um, with uh, – since there's minority representation guaranteed in the system – there are nine seats in Parliament for Christians. There are three seats for Circassians and Chechens. There are 15 seats as a women's quota. They've made sure to bring in a few people on every, almost every list who are not, in fact, Islamists at all. They've toned down their rhetoric. There's no Islam is the solution rhetoric. There are no Muslim Brotherhood flags. Uh, they've noticeably tried to uh, appear, in effect, nonpartisan and non-Islamist. So some of the tribal groups have tried to do the same thing, have a few tribal candidates that are the powerhouses on the ticket, then bring in a few other people from from uh, non-tribal uh, constituencies and things like that in hopes that you will just get more people to vote for your overall list. 
But then once they do, then we're back to that other more complicated issue of uh, you, then you're kind of competing against each other within the list because uh, you, you, you want to make sure you're the head of your list and you actually get through the door all the way to those uh, the final part, which is 130 seats, because we have more than 2,000 people com- competing for th- uh, 130 seats, ultimately. So uh, I saw a story uh, maybe a week or two ago uh, suggesting that there were concerns that turnout would be extremely low and that the government right. was quite worried about this. Um, h- how does that play out, especially given the strong ground game that people expect the uh, the Brotherhood to have? I think that's um, probably the single most um, problematic uh, aspect of the whole election because the yeah, general level of enthusiasm appears to be really low. And I guess we won't know for sure till Election Day. But it's not just one of those things where the opposition is saying, look, nobody cares. Uh, people have lost faith in the system. Uh, people in the Independent Election Commission are saying this. Government officials are saying this and so on. There's genuine worry that uh, faith in the polls, and very often faith in the institution, in Parliament itself, is so low. And Parliament's done a great job of making sure, you know, faith is very, very low. There have been lots of fiascos with individual members of Parliament and so on, um, that people just ridicule the institution. And it's not particularly powerful. Most of the power is in the monarchy, not in the legislature. There's so many reasons for people not to really get excited um, and they're also worried about other issues. The economy is in very bad shape. There are security concerns and so on. There are lots of other things going on. So it's, it's a problematic issue because it will cast doubt, certainly on the polls themselves, from a regime perspective. They want as high a turnout as possible. Uh, they want to get into um, you know, at least the 50 percentile mark above, above the halfway mark if they can. Um, but the predictions have been in sort of pre-election polling. Um, anywhere from 30% to well below 40 anyway. Um, and a lot of people sort of pounced on this. And I think there you have a group that, since it does have the ground game, the Islamists feel like they can even do even better if, if the turnout is technically low for, let's say, Jordanians at large, but it's really, really high for Islamist Jordanians. It could skew the election. Um, so it's not representative, really, of the whole population, but really, really represents the Islamist population really, really well. So if you're IAF, you probably want this too. If you're the regime, you don't. If you're anybody who's the many, many uh, set of lists who are not Islamists, um, who are trying to take this actually fairly seriously and are actually among the very few to come up with actual platforms, um, then this is also disturbing. They desperately need turnout. And I think the swing factor there is Jordanian youth. Um, It's overwhelmingly a young country, half the population is age 20 or, or younger, so uh, not all those are obviously eligible, but uh, but uh, late teens and, and early 20-somethings are certainly eligible to vote. So in effect, Jordanian millennials, uh, are they going to participate in the system uh, or not? Are they going to vote? Are they going to uh, do so with enthusiasm or blow off the elections and, and focus on participating in other ways? Because there's no shortage of activism in the country. The question is, Will they bother with the elections themselves? Now, is there any sense uh, among the Muslim brothers that you talk to that they've maybe learned a lesson from Egypt, that there's a danger of doing too well, that maybe they should be self-limiting so that they don't trigger some kind of red line by which the regime might step in and cancel the elections or you know, respond in some other way? Yeah, I think, I think exactly. I think that's exactly it. In fact... There's, but there's been such a division within the movement over um, 
whether you want to push further or in terms of what lesson to draw. So we can almost see it in the different sub-organizations. So the Zamzam and Reform Movement that's running as the National Congress Party uh, and the Islamic Centrists, for example, are both pursuing something that looks more, a bit more like, um, in some ways, maybe like Al-Nahda in, in Tunisia, um, where they're trying to tone things down, they're bringing other people in, they're trying to look... Uh, not not completely Islamist and, and, and more eclectic, especially the Zamzam movement, um, and not even fielding candidates uh, in every constituency. They're fielding, I think Zamzam, last I checked, had maybe 20 candidates for the 130 seats, and the centrist maybe just above that, I think at 23, uh, running for the 130 seats, whereas the IAF, running as the National Coalition for Reform, is clearly drawing the complete opposite lesson here. Um, and is is not uh, worried, and perhaps they should be, uh, by doing not worried about doing too well in the election. They're trying to put everything they have into this and make as a strong a set of inroads as they possibly can in almost every constituency, um, triggering the exact alarm you were just referring to. Whereas the other Islamist movements who are competing with them, this this is what they've been saying all along. As you see, you're going to you're actually endanger all of us by pushing this too far. There is such a thing as too much success, perhaps. So a couple of the movements, Zamzam and the centrists, are trying to take a more low-key approach, focused, win in particular constituencies, limited number of, of seats they're even competing for, whereas the IAF is trying to go, I would say, all in uh, and across the board nationally. One last question. You know, given all of the challenges and problems that you've laid out, and, and given the fact that there's you know, pretty clearly no pressure from the outside to hold these elections, since everybody is deeply worried about Jordan's stability, why do you think the king decided to go ahead with elections at this time? Well, I think it was, I think they would have almost had to have a reason not to at this time, because the, um, Having gone through the whole process uh, before 2013, they kind of rolled around finally to the 2013 elections. There had a number of elections of parliaments that did not finish their full term. The previous two, which were marred by all kinds of irregularities, to put it mildly, 2007, 2010. 2013 improved on a lot of the mess of the actual procedural aspects of the elections with with legions of foreign election observers, of which I I was one, during that election. So I'm going to try to clean up the process and restore faith in the system. Um, But there were still complaints, of course, about the electoral system itself of representation. And so the whole process now, they've been talking for the entire four years post those elections, of this sort of more regular four-year cycle or close to four-year cycle. Um, and I think they felt like they needed to get this through uh, now rather than wait, say, even a few months from now um, to try to keep it as consistent and, in quotes, regular as possible. Um, but a lot will still depend on what, what happens next. I mean, for example, um, there's there's a chance, as there was last time, with making lots of changes in terms of the electoral law, making lots of changes in terms of the day-to-day aspects uh, of how it works and trying to clean up the system, and yet for all the changes, ending up with a parliament that looks remarkably like the previous one in terms of who the parliamentarians are, and of course the fact that parliament still has very, very little power at all. Um, So that, I think, is actually a danger to the system. I think they were simply trying to be somewhat consistent and keep the ball rolling very slowly, but but, uh, from their perspective, somewhat steadily. Um, But they may have opened up an opportunity for a lot of the opposition movements that was maybe not intended. And the opposition movements, if they have something in mind here, it's the original opening back in 89, where they made huge inroads, uh, which the regime did not expect, 
Um, it's not clear to me that that will happen this time because the election is so designed along different districts and designed to really dilute their their, their collective power. Uh, but certainly they're feeling that anyway, and they're, they're trying to do the 89 uh, redo, whereas the regime is thinking uh, anything but that. Um, so I'm not sure it's going as planned, but at this point they're going to they're going to uh, stay the course and try to go ahead and have the elections on September 20th, and a lot of questions at least will be answered in terms of whether or not the turnout is as low as projected, how the Islamists do, and very importantly, which Islamist movement, uh, which one will really stand up and do well, whether youth really participate. I think another question, by the way, is since at least 15 women will get. Uh, uh, seats because of the quota, will other women win seats outright without the quota? And in which constituencies will they be progressives and, and for um, gender equality and for coming from a feminist perspective? Are they going to be coming from the Islamist movement or how is this actually going to shake out? So really comes down to do people to participate? Who wins? What kind of parliament do we have? And does it look uh, disturbingly like the previous parliaments or does it look actually noticeably different uh, with people who have platforms and policies and genuine ideas. Uh, and then we'll see where that goes from there. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Kurt. Uh, this has been the Pull Maps podcast. We've been speaking with Kurt Ryan, uh, Appalachian State University. Um, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. 